Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. you to meet some people today. These are real people. I've just changed the names to protect the guilty. Uh, the first is a, a gal by the name of Janice that called me several years ago, and she was thinking about taking her own life. And the reason that she was contemplating suicide was that she had dated this guy for a while, and he had met someone else on the internet. And she couldn't understand why he would uh, destroy the relationship that they had in order to uh, have a relationship with someone that he had not even met face to face. Also, I want to introduce you to Debbie. Uh, Debbie didn't even like the taste of alcohol, but whenever she was out with her friends, she drank anyway because she didn't want them to think poorly of her. And she always went further than she really wanted to go in terms of expressing physical affection when she was on a date because she was afraid that if she didn't do that, that the boy would not ask her out again. Then I want you to meet Jim. Jim was a member of our church early in the, the years of our church when we were over on Dalrock Road. And everybody loved Jim because if you had a plumbing problem, all you had to do was call Jim and Jim would be there. He wouldn't charge you for it, even though that's what he did for a living. And if you wanted to move, uh, Jim was always the first one to get there and he was also the last one to leave. And even though he had a family of his own, he spent two or three nights a week over at his mother's house fixing things for her and yet he still felt guilty that he wasn't doing enough for her. And then finally meet Sue, because Sue, uh, her husband, is an alcoholic. And sometimes instead of coming straight home from work, he stops at the bar and he gets so drunk that sometimes he doesn't make it from his pickup truck to the front door. And so Sue goes out and drags him in the house and cleans him up and puts him in bed, puts his pajamas on him. And sometimes she'll even call and lie for him the next day when he doesn't get up to go to work and say that he's sick. And most of the time, Sue's husband's a pretty nice guy, but sometimes he gets so drunk that he beats her. And Sue's thought about leaving her husband, but then she thinks again, and she actually ends up apologizing to her husband for saying or doing whatever caused him to beat her. Now, all these people have one thing in common. They care too much about what other people think. And they're spending their life trying to please others. Let me share with you one last person. And I'm not going to change this person's name because you're going to recognize who he is anyway. His name is Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is at the Last Supper with the Lord Christ. And in Christ is talking about the fact that everyone's going to betray him, to turn away from him. And Simon Peter pulls Jesus aside. He said, I'm not going to betray you. I'm not going to deny you. Everybody else may, but not me. And then they go to the garden and some guards from Caiaphas, the high priest, come and they take Jesus away. And Simon Peter follows at a distance and he finds himself 
in a courtyard warming himself by a fire and a young maiden girl says, hey, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus Christ? And he quickly denies it. A little bit later, somebody else comes and says, no, I think you are. You're one of those folks who followed the Galilean. And he denies it a second time. And then finally, he's confronted by another person and he denies a third time. And this time he uses curse words in order to emphasize the fact that he has nothing to do with Jesus. And about that time, the rooster crows. And he remembers that the Lord had predicted and prophesied that before the night was over, he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And the Bible says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. What happens when we allow other people and their opinion of us or what they might do to us shape the way that we live instead of allowing God to be God? Uh, We're in a series of messages called BYOG. In other words, bring your own God. And we've been looking at some of the possibilities of gods that we bring to the party. And that very first week, we talked about the fact that some of us, it's not somebody else or something else, it's us, it's our pride. And many times we think that we can take the place of God, that we can do for ourselves so that we don't have to rely upon God. And it's this self-righteousness that sometimes becomes our God. And then the second week, we talked about possessions, that it's either money or what money will buy for us sometimes that we try to fill the hole in our heart that only God can fill. And then last week, we talked about the fact that for some others, it's pleasure, it's comfort or some experience that we are willing to sell our birthright for in order not to follow God to experience those things. And today we look at the possible God of other people where we deify the people in our lives and we allow them to be, have the priority and the place of honor that only God should have. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians, the first chapter, and look in verse 10. This is Paul the apostle who is speaking. And he, and he asks this question, he says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And Paul here uh, acknowledges what we all know, and that is we make a choice. If we seek to please people, then Christ is not the king of our life. And he uses this term bondservant here. You know, usually when we think about bond, some of you will actually have a, a, a translation that says bond slave. We usually think about slavery or or we think about servanthood. We think about somebody who's serving against their will. But in that day and age, if you were a Hebrew, you could actually make yourself a servant or a slave of someone else to pay off a debt, indentured servitude. Or you might even want to buy a piece of land or to buy a, a house and you would say, I'm going to be your servant or a slave for a certain amount of time in order to pay for that. But they had a a, a law, and that law comes from Exodus, the 21st chapter, where it says that if you had served six years, no matter what the debt was, no matter what you were purchasing, you could not do it longer than six years. On the seventh year, no matter what the debt was, you would be set free, and the debt would be considered paid in full. The property would be yours. The land would be yours. But there was a caveat If while you were serving this master, you had come to believe that this master really did care for you and your family, and your life was never better than before you came into his or her household and served them, you could choose of your own volition, of your own will, 
to stay a servant of that person. And if you did that, it was called a bond servant or a bond slave. And there was actually a ceremony that you would go through and you would actually pierce one of your ears so that when people looked at you, when they looked into your face, they would realize that you had chosen to be a servant. You had chosen to be a slave because you trusted your master so much. And Paul is using this as an illustration, as a metaphor of his own relationship with Christ. Now, Christ has paid his debt in full, not because he worked six years, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Paul says, I have come to learn that when I'm serving Christ, I'm better off than any other time of my life. And true freedom is being a servant of Christ. And so I have of my own volition, of my own will, I have chosen to be a bond slave of Christ. And then he says here, he says, I can't be a bond slave of Christ and be a slave to other people. You have to make a choice. In the addiction world, uh, it's called codependency. That's a term that was coined in the early 1970s. They were studying addicts and they uh, came to notice not only some characteristics of those people who were addicted to some substance, their drug of choice, but they came to realize there were also some patterns in the lives of the significant others of the addicts, their children or their uh, spouses or even their parents. And they found that what happened a lot of times because they, uh, their, their lives had been interrupted by this addiction that they weren't getting the love and the support and the relationship that they needed. And, and so these people who were drug addicts or alcoholics, they were dependents, but their codependents were depending on that person to get well in order to have their needs met. And it totally changed their life. And their life began to center around the addiction of the addicted person. So much so that some became enablers. They took the passive route of, of making it easy for the person to stay in their addiction. Here was a, a son or a daughter who was doing drugs. And instead of saying, no, you're not going to do that while you're in my house. They actually covered up for them and they facilitated and they enabled that person to stay on drugs because they were so afraid of losing that relationship. And they became codependent. Uh, others tried so hard to fix their uh, spouse or to fix their children uh, that what they would do is they spend all of their money and all of their time, they would even neglect other children in the family in order to give emphasis to try to fix and felt guilty about the failure of the addict and took that upon themselves. But whether, whether they did the passive route of enabling or they did the control route, it, it's, uh, the person who was in addiction became the thing or the person that drove everything in their life. Uh, we see the same thing in marriage a lot of times. I do. Where someone deifies their spouse. That's the way I describe it. And you say, well, now see, what do you mean by deifying their spouse? It means that they're depending on their spouse to provide for them what only God can provide for them. Uh, I call it the expectation reality gap. In that gap, uh, when we go into a relationship, sometimes this is dating, sometimes it's not marriage, sometimes it's dating, but whether it's dating or marriage, we come with this expectation that if I can just marry this person or be in a relationship with this person, then all my problems are gonna go away. And this person is gonna provide happiness for me. And then all of a sudden we realize one day, that's where reality is, that all of a sudden we married a sinner just like us. And they don't always do what we want them to do when we want them to do it. And, and they don't always wanna go where we wanna go or, or participate in what we wanna participate. And what happens is this expectation reality gap. And this is how mad you are. 
or how depressed you are or, or how despondent or suicidal that you are. Because what we're doing is we're expecting our spouse to meet all of our needs or as one corny line in the movie says, to complete be. No human being can complete you. That, that's not what that relationship is, is supposed to provide. And, and as a result, what happens is that we begin to, uh, we begin to uh, cause, let that person determine our happiness or our sadness on any given day. Now, I do believe that God wants to meet a lot of our needs through our significant others. I really do believe that. And that's, I think, why God has given us communication. Because if we communicate each, to each other our needs and we grow in our relationship with Christ, what happens is reality will improve in a healthy marriage. Every year that you're married, you shouldn't be having the same arguments that you had the first year. You should have brand new arguments in the 30th year. And you solve those and you resolve those and the reality becomes better. But the truth is, is you're still married to a sinner. And, and what we've got to do is we've got to lower our expectations about what another human being will provide for us. And you notice there, there's still a gap. Hello. But I think you and I can handle that kind of gap. I don't think that we can handle this kind of gap. And what will happen if we're not careful is that we take two extremes. One is where we yield in that relationship, where we become a, door, a doormat for the other person and we always let them have their way and we always uh, go along to get along. And that's not healthy at all, not for the marriage and not for the other person. There's some times you should say no to your significant others. The other extreme to that is where you try to control everything. You power up on the person in the relationship and you pout or you get mad or you scream or you demand or you withhold things so that they'll behave like you want them to behave. Whether you choose the control method or the yield method, both of them are irregular and they're unhealthy for both individuals involved and for the marriage. What God wants us to do is God wants us to live in this beautiful part here in the middle where we let God meet our needs. Let me just tell you something. I've been married for uh, 46 years. That will be on the test, by the way. <laughs> My wife makes a great wife. She makes a terrible God. She really does. And when I give her that job description, she's going to fail every time. And then what it's gonna cause me to do is for me to either swing to one way and try to let her have her way on everything to keep her happy or to go the other way and try to pressure her to be the person that God never intended her to be in order that I can be happy. But if I'll let God be God and meet all my needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus, because that's what he's promised me, then I, what I can do then is I can relax and I can communicate to my wife how she can do a better job of meeting my needs, but I'm not dependent upon her changing or me convincing her. And I don't have to manipulate her and I don't have to power up and I don't have to play games of withdrawing my affection from her in order to get her to do what I want her to do. God wants to meet a lot of my needs through Marsha, but he's not dependent upon her cooperation. Doesn't say there in Philippians, uh, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus unless Marcia doesn't cooperate. That's not what it says. It allows me to have a normal, a healthy relationship, a growing relationship, a relationship of communication, but not manipulation because God is God rather than my wife. Now, 
What complicates this a bit is because there's nothing more important than our relationships. And so when this goes wrong, a lot of stuff goes wrong. You do realize that when they asked Jesus what's the most important thing in the world, he said, it's your relationships. In Mark, the 12th chapter and verse 29, they said, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, and he said, the foremost is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other great, uh, commandment greater than these. And so nothing's more important, but I want you to notice there that the order, see, he's cre created two boundaries for us. The first boundary is God comes first. The relationship you have with God comes first, and you let him be God, and you let him meet your needs. And then don't neglect your, your loving of others, but notice uh, first of all, it says that God is God. And no other relationship is to come anywhere near the relationship and the allegiance that you have with him. In fact, in Luke the 14th chapter, I want you to listen to this controversial verse in verse 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if all we had was that one verse, we would think that God tells us to hate everybody. But we don't just have that one verse. We can't just pull it out of the context of the rest of the Bible. We know in the rest of the Bible, the Bible tells us to love one another. So what is he saying here? Well, obviously, he's using a hyperbole here to say that the love that you and I should have for God should be so great that in comparison, any other love looks like hate. That's what he's saying there, very, very clearly what he's saying. And so that's got to be the, the first thing that provides a boundary for us is our love for God. But as we look back at that Mark passage, notice the other boundary that it's there. It says we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. See, we're never to love our neighbors in a way that is not having a healthy self-love for ourselves. And we really can't love our neighbors in the way that God wants us to love them without, first of all, having a healthy love for ourselves. And that means we would never become a doormat. That means we'd never yield all of the time because there's some legitimate needs that we have in our life. It means that we trust God to meet our needs and as he meets our needs, it sets us free to love others, not because we're trying to win them over. We're not giving in order to get from them, but we're free to truly love them, don't miss this, because of their legitimate needs. But we're also free to say no to others when their needs are not legitimate. And we're not pressured by the fact that we have to have a relationship with them and we have to have them in our life and we're gonna die if they don't love us. We're free to truly love them in the way that God's called us to when we have those two boundaries that are there. Now finally travel back with me, if you will, to Simon Peter. Because now Simon Peter has denied the Lord three times. He find him, finds himself weeping bitterly and then the Lord goes to the cross and the Lord then is resurrected and we find in John the 21st chapter that Jesus Christ is walking on the shore. And the reason that he's walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is because the disciples by Peter's invitation have gone fishing. And they fished all night long and they've not caught anything. And, and so Jesus calls from the shore. They're about 100 yards off the shore. Jesus calls and he said, how's fishing? And there's this long silence of fishermen uh, silence when you've caught nothing. 
And he said, well, cast the net on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, they recognize that it's Jesus who's giving this command. And they have a flashback of a time when they first were called to follow him and Jesus told them how to fish. This carpenter knew more about fishing than they did. And so they throw the boat on the other side and they catch, according to John 21, 153 fish. You can tell that this particular book of the Bible is written by a fisherman because he wants to brag about how many they brought in. Meanwhile, Simon Peter jumps in the water, swims to the shore and greets Jesus and he finds that Jesus already has a fire there going. And there's already fish that Jesus has provided that's being cooked and they have breakfast together. And then in John, the 21st chapter, it says this in verse 15. And so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to Peter, tend my lambs. Now it's obvious what's happening here. Jesus is confronting him with the fact that he denied him three times. In fact, if you know the story, he asked the question three times. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now what's interesting here is that there's a question about what Jesus meant when he said more than these. What was he talking about there? What was he referencing there? Do you love me more than these other men love me? Do you love me more than you love these other men? Because you invited them to go fishing. You didn't invite me to go fishing. Do you love me more than these fish, 153 to be exact? And all the equipment and all the boats and all that brings wealth to you. I think that's interesting that he asked that question and he left it so open. There are some people who believe that what he was saying is, do you love me more than these other men love me? You remember Simon said, everybody else will betray you, but I won't betray you. What was going on there? What was going on is that he had put pride as his God. He was saying, I can do something that nobody else can do. In fact, I think it's interesting when Jesus asked this question, he said, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Uh, he said, it's Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Uh, look back at that. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Why did he call him Simon, son of John? That was his name before he became a disciple. You know what the, the name Simon means? The name Simon means pebble. You know what the, the name Peter means? It means rock. So he didn't call him rock here. He calls him Simon, son of John. In other words, he's saying, how, how did it go when you tried to do it without me? How did it go when you thought you were smart enough, that you were strong enough, that you were righteous enough? And so what, what he's doing is he's confronting perhaps Simon Peter with his pride. Or he could have meant, do you love me more than these fish? and the boats, and the nets, all of these things that brought you your self-esteem, all these things that brought you money, put food on the table, do you love me more than your possessions? Perhaps what he meant is do you love me more than these? you love these men? 
Are they more important to you than I am? Because when you got ready to go fishing, even though you know I was resurrected, you didn't invite me to go fishing, you invited these old buddies to go fishing. See, really what is happening in that John 21 chapter, I think he meant all three of those things. Because he was confronting him with the fact that Simon Peter had brought his own God when he thought he could stand against the wilds of Satan by himself. That, that he brought the God of possessions when he went back to what was familiar to him rather than because he had failed at being a fisher of men to go back and just be a fisherman. That he had made people more important and the old relationships he fell back into more important than the relationship he had with Christ. And what's very, very interesting in that same chapter after he says over and over and over again, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. There in verse uh, uh, 28 and 29 of that same chapter, and John, he, he for, or actually verses 18 and 19, he says, let me tell you what's gonna happen to you then, Simon Peter. He said, you're going to be taken to places where you don't wanna go and they're gonna bind you. And listen to what it says here. It says, now he said this, signifying what kind of death that he would glorify God. And when he had spoken these things, he said, follow me. In other words, he said, in the future, you're gonna be tempted to make pleasure or comfort your God. But if you follow me, you've got to let go of comfort because you're gonna die a violent death on a cross just like I did. What he did is he confronted Simon Peter with the other gods in his life. And I think it was preserved for you and I so that we might be confronted with the other gods in our life as well. Will you pray with me right now? As we enter this time of prayer, I wonder if you might just be honest with the Lord right now. See, I think there's one of those four gods that we have a greater temptation to put in the place of the true God. Is it our own self-righteousness? Oh, I think I'm gonna get to heaven. I think I've been good enough. Is it the possessions in our life? In America, that certainly is a temptation. Or is it comfort, pleasure, and the experiences that we don't want to give up even though we're betraying the one to whom we have made ourselves a bond slave. Or perhaps it's other people that we allow to push and shove us around and take us off course because we trust them and what they would provide for us more than we would trust God. The truth is, like Simon Peter, all of us are tempted in all of those ways to replace our true God with one of these false gods. But where do you find yourself failing the most? Which one of those four? Would you just talk to the Lord about that for a moment? And would you just reaffirm that you voluntarily, of your own will, have made yourself a bond slave of the true and living God? Recommit yourself to that. Dear Heavenly Father, we confess today that only you are God. There's only one God, and it's not us. And it's not the things in our life. It's not the people in our life. It's not the experiences that we have. You alone 
our God. Help us to live in light of that, dear Father. Set us free in our servitude to you to truly love other people for the right reason and in the right way. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Thank you.